Previously on the censor, we were introduced to a city named Hosebain and to a new denizen there named Hikadoff. And as Hikadoff was birthed into this world, he created something horrible. He killed his adopted father. It was a miracle, but it was still murder. So his whole existence needed to become a secret. So his mother, Weem, she hid him in Telbathud, a brotherhood or fraternity that was near the palace where Weem lived. Hikidoff survived and became a citizen, not a citizen, a resident of Telbathud. But Weem died. The reason Weem died was because her household was being run by the Lord Yikin, who was, in a way, the overlord of this city. And uh, Yikin had it in his mind to give the city over to an invader rather than plunge that city into warfare, which would decimate that, both both kill most people in that city, but also decimate its capital, capital and uh, cause several, centri- uh, several uh, generations of turmoil. And in this, this might have been the one wise decision in his life. Because otherwise he was a cruel and uncompromising man who hoarded his wife greedily. This was the man that Hikidoff had murdered when he was born. So in his, in his secret life in Telbathud, in the city under control by the foreign emperor Kotal Beskig from across the desert, Hikarov grew into a young man, witnessing very strange things in Telbathud, getting to know the interesting characters there. Uh, the, the man who was raising him, Kaibin, who was simple, kind, but still simple. There was his friend Tobek, the uh, this the youngest person there besides him. There was Raparish, the gatekeeper, who was very suspicious. There was Fesia, who very intelligent, very learned, very studious, hardworking, but difficult to talk to. Uh, didn't didn't like to speak about much besides his books. There was Gomad, the winemaker, who also very talented, produced a superior wine and was very serious about this, but like Fessia, very difficult to talk to. Um, and un- unlike Fessia, somewhat mean-spirited. There was also the Pabo, the Archbishop, the ruler of Telbathud, whose name really is Duliach, but 
He is known by his title, the Pabo. He's very wise. Uh, just what you'd expect from an old man running an ancient fraternity. And he is aware of what could become of this uh, organization. He's aware of what could become of this city. And he doesn't realize this until uh, he could off uh, goes into his early teens. And we see finally the death of uh, the Tell's oldest member. And that's not the Papal. That's Gendel, Brother Gendel, who in the previous episode we witnessed his death. Gendel was difficult. He was somewhat mean-spirited, as you could see with him being the closest friend to Gomad. But he was also very intelligent, extremely intelligent, very perceptive, and he was the most talented limner there. Now, what it means to be a limner, I will speak of that further at length. As a matter, matter of fact, this whole episode will be spoken extemporaneously. It will be spoken without any planning, without any pre-writing. It is somewhat shameful, but I need time to write it. This will be the end of this season of The Censor. And at a later time, I shall pick up the narrative. But for now, for this episode, I will talk to you about the world in which Hosebayan and the basin of Guntoig and the surrounding deserts and the empire of Tescor and the distant nation of Wintekia. I'll, I'll explain that all to you and I'll explain why I made this. This is The Censor. By Seth Brady. Epilogue to Season 1. This is Seth Brady here. And um, I'm sorry that I have to do this. I had it in mind to write out the whole, uh, whole story front to end and keep up with the writing. But many things got in the way. Many things in my life suddenly sprang up. Um, and also some themes of this story have become more disturbing to me than I would have expected, particularly that episode. Uh, I won't go into it, uh, for those who don't know me, I, uh, I, I'll have, let just let them interpret that on their own, but for those who do know me, you might see why themes in this show might have become more disturbing to me than usual. So I'm going to need to just stick to writing the show and not speaking about it or not narrating it. I will continue to speak about it. And then at a later date, when these things become less disturbing to me, I'll, I'll begin to narrate them again. I'll begin to edit these shows. I'll begin to, as you can tell, I'm tripping over my words. I'm saying things that don't seem very planned out that my vocabulary seems limited that's because I'm not editing this and I'm not pre-writing it. There's an important thing to know about the world of the censor, and that is, is that it exists in a world that I've 
been thinking about and that I've been planning ever since I was a child. I used to call this world the, the seventh world. even uh, The seventh world being a mythical land that was sought after by people in the distant future. They had discovered different planets with uh, intelligent life in it. And the, the f- first world that they discovered that intelligent life in it was called the second world. You know, uh, the second world they discovered was, uh, that had intelligent life was called the third world, so on and so forth. Until they got to the sixth world, which was populated by a, uh, a very brutish, cruel people who had nothing really to offer humanity. But they did theorize, they, they mythologized about uh, another world that wasn't known of by humanity. The humanity had never visited this world because it was just physically too far away to reach in a reasonable amount of time. And that was, that was the, what would be their seventh world. And in this story, they, they would never reach it. It was not just that it was too far away. It's that it turns out it wasn't a real physical place. But there were denizens of this seventh world. And unbeknownst to humanity, unbeknownst to any of these alien creatures, they were being influenced by these creatures all along. They were kind of a Star Trek-style incorporeal race of uh, godlike beings. You see, when I was thinking about this, I didn't realize how unoriginal this idea was, so I was very excited about it. Then as I began to actually read more, began to actually take in more media, I slowly realized that the idea by itself didn't have a whole lot of merit. It needed to, it needed to be told in an interesting way. So instead, in, the, in recent years, I began to focus more on the this future world, this future where human beings, and this was something that I've, I've always uh, envisioned about this world in a in a rather uh, you know H.G. Wells time tra- uh, uh, the time machine sort of sense. Uh, humanity at this point had diverged into two separate species, and this is. By the way, this is a an allegory which I've always been aware of, but I've consciously tried to distance myself from the time machine. Now, unlike the time machine, these two species are roughly equivalent, if not entirely equivalent, in the basis of intelligence. They're intellectually on par with each other. And... In reality, they're, they're, they don't have any advantages over each other at all. The only difference was that some uh, cataclysm in the past had set one of the, uh, set the uh, one of the civilizations forward several generations in terms of uh, in terms of technological advancement. Now, the one that was set back. Uh, these humans were humans that were, we would be very familiar with. Humanoid shape, arms, legs, torso, head. Uh, probably you wouldn't notice any difference between them and us. 
The other one, however, they look very much like us, of course, except for a glaring difference is that they are born without arms and legs. They come out just a, a, a torso with a head. Now, you might think this is something that would obviously be selectively bred out in uh, several several generations just naturally. It wouldn't, it wouldn't even require any human intervention. But problem is, they, uh, they did not go extinct, and they continued to be born this way. This is impossible, of course. In, any, in, in the real world, this would be impossible. Even in my theoretical projection, I don't think it's feasible. But it's what I thought of. This isn't exactly science fiction. This has a lot of fantastical elements. The fact of the matter is, is that they these very primitive people that are described in the sensor, uh, that, that's what they are. These people are born without arms and legs. They're unaware of this other race of human beings that have that naturally have arms and legs they're in a far away land they're as aware of them as uh the pueblo people would be uh to the ancient uh turkic peoples they're geographically just so distant and their technology has not brought them you know within a navigable distance from each other so any awareness they have of each other is just myth and legend at this point in their history now I, I just realized something I'm describing these people as if they're uh, you know uh, w- within the BC era of, that we're aware of that they are within the few hundreds BC and that is well you could probably have noticed that this whole story is somewhat of a Christ allegory, which I regret starting it that way, but that's how I began it. And that's because these people are in in somewhat that level of development. They are in the 0 AD, the 0 BC sort of level of technological advancement. Oh, and, and yet I've said that this is in the future. I know that a lot of people say that about the uh, intro to Star Wars as well. That well, if this is in the if this is in the past, why are why are they have such incredible technology? Why do they have plasma swords? Why do they have uh, ray guns and such? This might be a for a similar reason. There was probably some sort of cataclysm of some event, some extinction event that drove these people. To this, uh, to this depth, it might have something to do with the fact that these people, that half of humanity, is born without arms and legs. They, these people, don't remember ever having uh, naturally grown arms and legs, though they do have it in their um, in their myths. They, in their mythos, uh, they see Dinia as naturally growing arms and legs. And they, they see that to be an evil thing. So these people probably have an ancestral memory of, of human beings as we would understand them. 
but at this point they would see such a thing as just a myth as just uh, the same way we would see a basilisk or or a chimera they don't know at this point that those sorts of human beings are real anyway i digress my point is that these people because they are born without arms and legs are compelled to make them for themselves now this manifests as the uh, the profession, the the culture, the continuance of the um, of the art of limning, uh, of making limbs. That's not exactly a very. That's not exactly what a linguist would call them. But uh, I'm just an animator. I don't really know much about inventing languages. Anyway, these this these limners who are viewed with as much uh, they're treasured as much and they're uh, viewed with as much deference as you would view a farmer, as you would view a hunter and uh, in addition to that these people need farmers and hunters not just because they need to eat but because they need to uh, farm and hunt the uh, tools for limning. Now, this is another ex- unexplained phenomenon in this world, but uh, in this world that these people live in exist plants and animals which naturally give them the tools for making limbs. They can they can take the fat from some animal and make a and make an artificial muscle. They can take the fatter brains. They can take the rhizome from a flower and make a sort of sponge which will suck up the blood from their stumps which will power the limbs they can there's a special type of tree that has branches that happen to look and are and are shaped like uh, leg bones arm bones they just happen to be that shape why this happened these people don't know why they have no idea why. I know why, of course, because I came up with the story, but it's not relevant to the story, so I don't think I should divulge it at this point. I think I've, in doing this, I've made this whole story less palatable. In explaining it, I've, I've uh, really sort of uh, revealed myself as not being a, as cogent of a storyteller as I would like to, as, you know, cogent, sorry about that, I, I thought my wife was just uh, coming home, but turns out it was just my neighbor rubbing their uh, jacket up against the door. Now, that has nothing to do with the world of the censor. What is the censor about? The censor is about Hikadoff. Hikidoff, as I explained in the intro to this, is um, he is just a human being. He's just a normal human being, in the you know the most literal sense of it, in the in the sense that there are no no normal human beings. He is not he's not a, a messiah. He doesn't really have magical powers any more so than any other any of these other people do. Um, he might have been 
uh, birth by, uh, you know, given a virgin birth, and he might actually be, in a sense, a, the son of God in this world, but he doesn't really have a destiny the way Jesus had a destiny. Right? When I say destiny, I don't mean, I mean, he is not destined to be a mar- martyr. He's not destined to uh, change people on a massive scale. Though he will. I'm telling you right now that he will do that. I'm, I, I don't know if this is a spoiler. And I don't really care because personally I think the detriment of spoilers, the uh, the damaging effect of them has been overstated historically. It doesn't matter when something is spoiled. It really does not matter at all. You're still going to enjoy it. And if someone spoils something for you, you're still going to go see that film or read that book. And when that thing that they told you about, when that happens, it's going to have the same effect. You're just you're going to be just as shocked. Why? Because you could probably guess one of the very few possibilities in a story. Stories don't really stories have such a limited range of possibilities compared to life because life doesn't have rules of storytelling. Storytelling has these rules. You can't do certain things. They're not interesting. They're not good storytelling. They're overly offensive. They're disgusting. So I'll tell you what happens when you what will happen when we when we come back to Hosubain and I suppose it will be a few months. Sorry about the wait. Uh, after this, I'll be doing another podcast in in the in the interim. Hold on a minute. I'm gonna. I need to tell my wife that she doesn't need to pick anything up on the way home. I'm writing. I'm not going to tell you what I wrote because uh, that's that's uh, not your business. Sorry, I don't mean to be unfriendly, but I'm somewhat of a private person in that respect. But I digress. And I, and I really digress because I have lost the thread. Okay, that's what I, I, I remember now. He get off subsequently is going to continue to age rapidly in the course of the story. Not in his world. In his world, he's aging sort of the normal pace of a man. But a, a, along with the story, we're, we're going to kind of skip a lot of his ages. In the next episode, he's going to be 16 years old. Or 15? Yeah, 15 years old. And he's going to meet uh, Elamacha, not for the second time in his life, the the little girl that whose life he had saved with his magical powers. I guess he does have magical powers somewhat, but this is a this is a mythological story. This is everybody kind of is able to have magical powers. He's going to meet her, and he's going to learn more about the city in his in his conversation with her he's going to learn more about the people that he grew up with moreover he's going to learn that um the woman who helped his mother uh not his mother uh helped elamacha's mother beska run the uh run the family business after leban died he's going to learn that uh 
uh, she, Weavum, it was her name, he's going to learn that Weavum was secretly a Taramkut, a worshipper of Dramtur. Her and her husband were at some point, a few years uh, ago in the in this point of the story, her and her husband were discovered by their neighbors to be Taramkits. And her husband was murdered in the streets in, the, in broad daylight by an angry mob. And she was kidnapped and probably killed at some point. Probably, I hate to say it, probably raped and murdered. Because this is the nature of... Uh, of hatred, of prejudice. The Taramkits, um, I really wish to avoid any allegory with them, but sometimes it's hard to avoid. But the reason, the reason I wish to avoid allegory is because there are so many people in the real world, there are so many groups that were treated in a similar way, that were viewed as pariah in a similar way. And a lot of these ways aren't don't fit the don't fit the mechanics of this world, so I won't I won't say who the Taramkits are. But they are in danger. They were in danger to begin with, but now the Kotal Beskig, he sees the hatred that the Hosia have for the Taramkits, and he wishes to exploit it. He wish he sees that it's a button that can easily be pushed. And that can easily, he knows that these people become helpless and stupid in reaction to their hatred. So he uh, seeks them out, he seeks the, uh, the exploitation of this hatred. He tells the Hosea that yes, you're right, the Taramkits are vermin, you should kill them. We'll, we'll protect you from the Taramkits. We'll, we will canonize your hatred we will declare them to be the the vermin of the streets we will effectively uh rewrite some of your religion to include hatred of these people and he successfully did this the kotel beskig became so much more powerful because he was able to almost completely change these people's culture So, like a, like a, a small amount of people in Hosea Bay and uh, the small, rational amount of people, starting with the Pebo and Fessia and Gendel, and now Hikadoff, Hikadoff realizes this whole plot. He sees that how the Kotel Beskig was able to exploit this hatred and uh, begin to, t uh, using the this pliancy from the this hatred begin to tax the uh tax Telbathud of all of its sales of wine and other foodstuffs. And seeing this corruption, the he could off storms from Telbathud. Storms from the city becomes disgusted with the city, becomes disillusioned with the holiness of the city. And says quite clearly that Yos, God, is gone. Gone from the city, gone from the land, gone from what is viewed as civilization. And he flees into the desert. 
the Kali Desert, the the same inimical wasteland that Kotal Beskig marched across. Now what he finds out there, I'm still still not quite clear to me, but I know that he he meets with the heavenly host out there. He sees the like uh, like the prophets before him, Guadan, of course, who saw Hedel and Dinia and Yos represented as avatars. He sees the heavenly host as well, and they, while confirming what he, he believes. They tell him not to give up on his people, because in spite of their confusion, they are still people. And that he should also not abandon the Taramkits. That they are vulnerable now, as they have never been before. And the only one who can help them is is, uh, Hikidoff. Now, of course, this is wrong. It's it's it was it would be wrong for Hikidoff to see himself as a sort of, well, in in the real world, we would see this as a white savior complex. But this isn't really what the heavenly host is telling him is not, um, the outside truth. It's mostly, it's a it's an impetus to, get him to realize his responsibility for the justice of these people. And his ability to sway the hatred of the Hosea. Now he he sees this because he's on his way to the to the distant land of Tescor, the ancient civilization which has created these people's uh, alphabet, the the uh, the Khalid Abjad, as I've called before. Abjad being a, a a sort of alphabet that only uses consonants and any sort of vowel, any sort of interseeing vowel is implied. Now, uh, he goes to the Tescor uh, kingdom because he's heard that Taramkits are more tolerated there, that they, that they don't have the same hatred for Taramkits. And they also... Uh, don't seem to be as uh, susceptible to this sort of stupefying hatred that the Hosea have fallen under. And he sees that to be, that it might be a holy land. He doesn't realize that even though the the portion of the Kali Desert that separates uh, the Gudentog Basin from Tescor, it, it might be a narrow strip, but the Kali Desert is huge. And that narrow strip is still much wider than a human being can cross safely all by themselves and on an unplanned voyage. So he could off almost dies until he, f- he finds a, a hole in the ground. And he begins to journey underneath because he becomes terrified of the sun and he sees in that sun, he sees Dinia's rage and her and her laughing gaze, and he speaks to her directly. And becomes for a moment he becomes friends with her. He feels pity for her. He knows what happened to her wasn't fair. That if Yos was as powerful as he 
claims to be, he wouldn't create something ugly that should be hated. That the fact that there was a dinya represented a fault in the Almighty Supreme Being. And that was the, that idea alone frightened him. That God could be so cruel and so fallible. So he fled into the earth, into a cave that seemed to appear out of nowhere in the sands. And he traveled through the darkness for a long time. Eventually finding pools of water which he nourished himself to a a sort of bleak, harsh, spartan life with. And he kept wandering, eating fish from the pools, catching rats, killing them and eating them. And there, in that desperate darkness, he discovers the celestial lady of the earth and of minerals. I wish I remembered her name, but I... uh, I would have to look at the document, and I don't want to have too many clicking sounds in this in this episode. But if you were to refer back to these episodes or read the lore on uh, thecensor.com, you would you would find her name. She tells him she she ensures him that he's not going to die in this cave, that he's not going to starve or die of dehydration that he will find friends in this cave. And thinking that this this celestial woman, this angel, she's a friend, is she not? But then she disappears. And he and in the moments afterwards he discovers a a race of ghoulish white-skinned monsters who don't have limbs. They don't have those artificial limbs that everybody has their arms and legs are of flesh and they they tell him that they are the people of dinia that uh, though though dinia is on the surface and burning up the uh the uh, everything with her harsh sunbeams that they are protected from dinia's wrath under the earth and because that they are nourished by her, and she loves them, and they love her. And they are, even though they seem like a wretched people and they're horrifying to look upon, they're happy. And they are prosperous in their own way. They, they drank the pools that he could off drank from. They ate the fish and the, and the small mammals that he could off ate, and their existence was holy. But he could off had yet to really become enlightened in the way that he was destined to become enlightened. And he still wasn't even sure if he had a destiny to fulfill. So he flees from this cave. And he finds on the surface that he's in a completely different place. That the land about seems to be less inimical. It seems to be less likely to kill him. Even so, he, as soon as he touches the sun and feels the heat on him, he slowly begins to be the, to die again. The dying process accelerates until he finds another group of people. Unlike those 
the people of Dinia, those sallow, fleshy arm and leg people, these are the same people as him, except not quite. They are a familiar people. He has seen these people in a dream. And he's heard his own words that he speaks to these people. He's heard that in a dream as well. Now, I, I, won't, uh, I won't divine any further what happens to Hikadoff. Because I got, I have to, I have to come up with it. Not because I, I'm not worried about spoiling it. I just, I have to figure out what will happen. I have a few ideas what may happen, but for now, just think that all that might happen. I might change my mind and tell a different story, but that's what I'm planning to do. So with that in mind, come on by and see what becomes of Hikadoff. See how he deals with these horrors and these beautiful revelations. I really want to tell this story too. I want you to hear it, but you've got to, you've got to tell people about it. Otherwise, they'll never hear about it. Please, go on thecensor.com. Go to the Twitter at uh, tcensor. Spread the word, for God's sake. This story is—it's something. Well, I can't really—I uh, can't really brag about it. It's not exactly unique. Now, and matter of fact, I—I I don't even know what I, I could tell you that really hooked people in. When people ask me what this is about, I don't know what to tell them. They'd have to listen to this almost forty-minute-long rant to have any idea, and even then they'd have to pay attention. Anyway, the after the, the week after this, I'm going to be doing another podcast, or an old podcast, rather. And it's going to be called, or it is called, Jefferson Avenue Way Station. Just imagine, rather than being told about a faraway, distant, perhaps future land, you're being told... About you're you're entering a uh, a um, a bar, a bar that only has uh, one type of beer, a thick stout, a thick syrupy, extremely strong stout, and that's the only beer that it serves. And it might be good enough, it might not be, but the bartender is willing to speak to you, and he's going to speak to you, and he's going to. Uh, He's going to enjoy it, and it's up to you if you want to enjoy that. So please, uh, every uh, every Monday, same time as with the censor, stop on by to the uh, to uh, Jefferson. Ave- I almost said the censor. No, new one, Jefferson Avenue Way Station. And uh, please keep telling people about the censor. Keep sharing the episodes. Keep liking and subscribing. Just, I, I do not make any money off of the censor. The only reason I do it is because I need to tell this story. And it might be a story that no one's heard at all. I, I, haven't, I haven't gotten any indication that anyone's heard this tale. I want to hear from you people what you think. You hear? All right. 
it's almost going to be 40 minutes that this whole recording lasted. So, and with the music added, it's probably going to be longer than that. So I'm going to wrap it up here. Thank you, my friends, and I'll see you sometime in the future.